Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 225 of The Bowery Boys. P.T. Barnum and The Greatest Show on Earth. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And on today's show, we're getting to know one of the most colorful personalities in New York City history. He's a man who brought us sensational spectacle. He brought museums to the masses. He smashed box office records in New York and around the world. And in his last great act, he created the greatest show on earth. Of course, we could only be talking about P.T. Barnum and his role in the invention of the American circus. Well, now that's debate. Well, we're going to get into all of that, (laughs) even what that means to invent the American circus. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Barnum has come up in several other shows that we've produced. Uh, We have an entire episode from 2008 dedicated to his American Museum. But we've never devoted a show specifically to his story and to the story of the circus that he created. This is a bit of a bittersweet story because the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus has announced that it will close its tent in May of 2017. So we'll be talking about the man, the legend, and of course, the circus that he gave to the world. But before we get started, Greg and I do have a little bit of news to share. We wanted to tell you about a little circus that we're cooking up on our own. The first episode of The Bowery Boys came out in June of 2007. So we are doing a live show in celebration, in support of that The show will be on April 9th as part of NYC PodFest, which is a weekend of live podcast extravaganzas hosted by The Bell House. We will be taping a show that day at 3.30 in the afternoon uh, for the very first time in front of a live audience. And we're really excited about it. We have plenty of surprises in store, some Bowery Boys shenanigans that we've cooked up, and you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at how we've recorded the show for the past 10 years. And afterwards, we'll all get to hang out together at the Bell House. We won't have as many clowns as a Barnum Circus might, however. But mimes. We'll be miming. <laughs> plenty, of mi- plenty of mimes. In the spirit of Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. <laughs> uh, but for tickets, we still have a few seats left. For tickets, head to nycpodfest.com to snag your seats while they're still available. But now, let's travel back in time to the big top. As we invite you to step right up 
and direct your attention to P.T. Barnum and his greatest show on Earth. Okay, Greg, well, before we head to the circus, which I'm obviously very excited to do. <laughs> this is a very personal show for you, Tom, because Tom, when he was younger, used to actually have circuses in his neighborhoods with animals, with animal acts, right. right? I cannot deny that that happened for many years, actually, back in Bellevue, Ohio. I've known my way around a circus <laughs> ring, Greg. But w before we get to the circus, um, yes, why yes, don't yes. you introduce us? To Mr. Phineas Taylor Barnum. Phineas Taylor Barnum, better known as P.T. Barnum. Now, most people think of Barnum, their minds go straight to the circus. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're putting him in this context. But in fact, he won't even start conceiving what we know today as the circus until the end of his life. Barnum was born in Bethel, Connecticut on July 5th, 1810. He was a very creative and restless young man. He, in fact, he had a very curious profession at age 18. When he was 18, uh, so he wasn't waiting tables, he wasn't bailing hay. What was he doing? <laughs> no, he was the operator of a lottery. A lottery? Was this legal? <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, there were no regulations back then, in fact. He, he started selling tickets to those, quote, willing to hazard a trifling sum for a chance of considerable gain. This didn't last too long. His own luck ran out when the debts overwhelmed his business, and he eventually moved to New York when he was 24 years old. This was 1834. As we've talked about on many shows before, this was the age of the penny press and the sensational stories that were driving newspaper sales. 1834, that's, that's right before the sensational murder of Helen Jewett. Yeah, and the great moon hoax. So all of these newspapers are being filled with fantastical and even false news items. Well, Barnum got bitten by the sensation bug, that humbug, if you will, in 1835, when he met an elderly African-American woman named Joyce Heth, who looked so aged mm -hmm. that Barnum began claiming and then advertising the fact that she was George Washington's 161-year-old nurse. Okay, well, that seems problematic on several different levels, but I guess he got his start in entertainment. Yeah, I mean, the experience actually set Barnum upon a path of public exhibition, media manipulation, promoting events by advertising them in the most outlandish means possible, mm. saying blatantly false things to drum up curiosity. Well, that works in show business and politics. <laughs> I mean, in the context of the day, many people had very little experience sorting out 
truth from mm-hmm. fiction in these salad days of the press. Many, of course, did understand that the wool was being pulled over their eyes, but didn't care. They were along for the ride. In his own words, quote, the public appears disposed to be amused, even when they are conscious of being deceived. Interestingly, Barnum's brand of hokum, it's um, hard to imagine this today or put ourselves in this mindset. But back in those days, it was seen as not only a mix of entertainment, but even education. Even those things we look back on today, which seemingly have no moral value, a lot of them had a certain educational, informative context to them. Like what exactly? What was he parading before the public to entertain and educate them? So his very first troupe, which was at a pleasure garden called Vauxhall Gardens, was called Barnum's Grand Scientific and Musical Theater. So you can even tell from that name that it had a little bit of education and a lot of entertainment, probably mostly entertainment. Now, in 1842, some of you may know the great humbug of Barnum called the Fiji Mermaid, Mm. which was this horrific creature which drew thousands of people to view this monstrous beast, which he claimed was an actual mythical mermaid. But but in reality, was this sort of horrible concoction, right? Made up of half monkey and half fish, sort of stitched together. (laughs) Yeah, like a, a horrific Frankenstein monster. So he would take something like this and present it to the public in charge admission. And made his reputation doing this in a variety of different ways. Now, there were two events that really changed the life of P.T. Barnum and set the stage, or rather set the three rings, if you will, for the development of the modern American circus. Now, that first big event in 1841 when he was 31 years old, Mm -hmm. was when he purchased a collection of curiosities, an old cabinet of curiosities, as they called them, which sat in a five-story building on Ann Street and Broadway, which is on the south side of New York City Hall today. Oh, had this been Scudder's American Museum? Right, yes. So he just purchased that to put on his own museum. Yeah. Museum in quotes. In quotes. It was a collection of old Tammany Hall curiosities and a, a bunch of other natural history wonders that had been collected in one space. I find the location of this very interesting because what's across the street on Ann Street and Broadway? Wouldn't that be Printing House Row with all the, yeah. the, the home to all the newspapers? Mm-hmm. Well, that probably was convenient <laughs> for Barnum. It's, it was a perfect place for Barnum to open his American Museum, which was a far flashier place than the old Scudder's Museum. Sharpening his skills of promotion, he used the museum as a platform to launch even more outrageous exhibitions. Oh, this ought to be good. What was it like <laughs> inside? Well, the contents were constantly evolving, Mm -hmm. of course, and (laughs) there were many fires over the years. Uh, The museum moved around a few times. But essentially, if you walked into this particular space on Ann Street, you paid your 25 cents, you would see, for example, natural wonders, both living ones Mm -hmm. and stuffed ones, creatures from all over the world. I'm sorry, live animals? Live animals, yeah. People consider this to be one of the first permanent menageries in New York, and it was the first aquarium in New York, which is, of course, a horrifying prospect because these aquatic beasts were kept in the basement. Okay, moving on. What else What else is in there? <laughs> so 
animal smells mm-hmm. are in here. You also have paintings, panoramas, and wax figures in historical reenactments. Okay, so kind of a creepy <laughs> art museum. <laughs> you had other cultures presented here, sometimes in wax, and sometimes they would be actual human beings who would be imported into the museum here. Okay, uh, sounds uh, problematic and disrespectful. <laughs> Presented in a sideshow style exploitation. This is really kind of the birth of the so-called sideshow. So curiosities both in object form and human form. Yes. There was also a theater that presented lectures and plays about the marvels of the age. And then you want to talk about problematic. There were presentations of individuals with physical differences or deformities. These were actual displays at the American Museum. This would come to be known in circus parlance as the freak show. People were often exploited in this way, although in rare occasions, some of them took the reins of their own exploitation and often partnered with Barnum in presenting their own stories. Sure, and I feel like some of these personalities became incredibly famous. In fact, I'm even putting my finger on one right now who I think he really became associated with. You may be referring to, in the 1840s, the debut of General Tom Thumb. That would be him. A boy of diminutive size who became a regular part of Barnum's museum entourage. He even eventually went on his own separate tour with Barnum uh, throughout the United States and even Europe. But wasn't Tom Thumb sort of a superstar in the circus world? I mean, in terms of the the business um, empire that was built around him, he partnered with, with Barnum, like you said, um, but he went on to make lots and lots of money. There was a whole universe created around Tom Thumb, this mythology that eventually they both helped create and even brought in other people. Barnum would dress up Tom Thumb in in strange clothing and in different characters and would even bring in other little people to help kind of tell the story in this entertaining way. He even had a bride by the name of Lavinia Warren and in a heavily publicized wedding, they were united at Grace Church with their best man being a Another renowned little person of the day. Do you, rem- do you happen to remember his name? Are you name? talking about Colonel Nuts? Commodore Nuts. Oh, Commodore Nuts. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting my rank confused. But incredible that it took place in Grace Church. Yeah, I mean, nicest, again, another church. Yeah, another publicity coup for Barnum that undoubtedly had a positive effect on ticket sales. Yeah. So, long story short. All of these things made the American Museum a huge success, an iconic institution of New York in the mid-19th century. And something that was famous across the country. Yeah. Okay, so so that's the American Museum and all of its curiosities. Yes. But that was just the first thing that you said got Barnum ready for the circus. Right. There are two key events in his life that kind of are embedded in the idea of the modern circus. The second one occurs almost 10 years after he opened his American Museum Okay, here. And this, I would say, is the creation of the first American pop star, or the first pop rock concert, if you will. They all trace back to this particular moment, with the promotion of a Swedish opera singer named Jenny Lind, who was the... Celine Dion, Beyonce, Lady Gaga, all wrapped up of the Victorian era. 
all wrapped up into one. My God, she was, um, I guess she was a real pre-Madonna. Well, thanks to Barnum, Lynn toured throughout the United States. She went to dozens of cities. Really interestingly, because of course this was before the era of recorded music, most Americans were not particularly obsessed with opera. So seems like a strange. Yeah, how choice. was he selling this to like the Midwest and to, you know, just to your average audiences yeah. around the country? Well, this is the real genius of Barnum. Just as the American Museum had embodied Barnum's understanding of human curiosity, this Lindomania, as they called it, Lindomania. Lindomania. Are you serious? Yes, Lindomania. Seriously, they called it that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lindomania represented Barnum's absolute mastery of promotion because he would go to all these cities before mm-hmm. she would arrive, weeks before the intended show, and would overwhelm places with posters and newspaper ads so that the moment that she would arrive into the city, she would be greeted like a long-lost queen. Like, everyone just fell over themselves to get their tickets to Jenny Lind. To this Swedish nightingale. (laughs) Was she good? By all accounts, she was actually pretty good. Her performances at Castle Garden Mm -hmm. uh, in Lower Manhattan were unparalleled in the history of live American entertainment, grossing $10,000 each night. She actually donated most of her money actually to charities, which is interesting. Wow. But this tour solidified Barnum's reputation as a respectable showman. And cemented his reputation as somebody who presented entertainments on the road, coast to coast, right? This was a time of traveling shows in America. Because we have to remember in the mid-1800s, you know, the country had expanded quickly westward. And in these days, you know, long before movie theaters and radio, smaller towns didn't have other entertainment options, you know, than those things that actually came to them. Yeah, they didn't have organic theater troops. Sometimes they didn't have theaters. Right. And this is something that you really dealt with in your last episode of The First. Yeah, this is a true crossover event because that episode, which was on the first circus elephant, Mm -hmm. talked about these menageries, these touring menageries that farmers and enterprising businessmen would take a gaggle of animals and just go on the road and charge admission for them. So certain elements of things that Barnum already had on exhibit in his American Museum, those same sorts of things might be on the road touring around the country. Menageries are a big thing. Mm -hmm. And then also circuses, but the circuses at this time, really before Barnum got into the game, were typically smaller events with only one ring, it should be noted, smaller tents. Nearly all of them traveled only by wagon, uh, being pulled by horses. And so, you know, that sort of limited their size and their scope. They incorporated acrobatics, clowning, by this time some wild animals, but they were just much smaller productions. So how specifically did he get into this business from having these you know, stationary museums mm-hmm. and tours with glamorous divas? Well, those were qualities that led him to getting snatched up by other circus producers, specifically two producers named William Coop and Dan Costello. Now, Dan Costello had been a famous circus clown and then got into the production side of the business. They pitched Barnum in 1870 on joining them on a circus venture. They knew they knew how to do the organizational side of the business, but they knew that he could obtain first-rate acts and curiosities, that certain Barnum blend mm-hmm. of, uh, of entertainment. And most importantly, they knew that he was a master, like you had just described, of publicity. And so this sort of combination seemed to them 
really attractive. He could combine all these other talents that he had with their circus management skills. It also must have been a practical decision on Barnum's part because by this time, the main museum had burnt down. It had moved to another location. Oh, they just kept burning down. So it must have been a relief just to get out of town. (laughs) Right. Although he didn't really get out of town because at least for these first few years, he still operated various museums and year-round operations in New York. It's just that he was also cooking up this circus with these guys. The first one opened on April 10th, 1871 in Brooklyn. It featured, Greg, 600 horses, plus all kinds of oddities and curiosities from Barnum's world. Wow, like what do you pair with 600 horses? Like what entertainment <laughs> what goes could they gall- <laughs> what gallops along with 600 horses? Well, in this case, he brought in some mechanical automatons. You know, there were oh. some mechanical humanoids. They were very in at the time. Plus, he had, quote, discovered a fossilized stone man. He called it the Cardiff Giant. He paired the giant naturally with a new little person he had signed on, who he called Admiral Dot, and another very tall person named Colonel Goshen, who he called the Palestine Giant. And, and, and the list goes on and on. So that was the very first show. But a heavy mix here of sideshow-style acts. Yes, and a secret to his success was also the publicity that he was drumming up. He was the first to cover, canvas towns 50 to 75 miles in advance of his arrival in and just sort of swamp them with circus bills and posters so that people couldn't help but just be overexcited by the circus's arrival. It's like the precursor to the modern highway billboard, promoting roadside attractions a hundred miles before you get there. But on the side of every barn, you can just see it. (laughs) And the next year, Coop had another new invention for Barnum Circus, and that was putting things on a circus train. Coop was the mastermind behind this innovation, and he worked out uh, deals with railroads to have more than 50 circus cars transport the circus around the country. Now, Barnum was initially against this extra expense. However, there was a big upside to taking the train instead of being pulled along by the wagons. It wasn't just faster, but it meant that it went to bigger towns, larger towns and small cities. It could hit bigger markets faster. So there were a lot of innovations with this particular collaboration between Coop and Barnum. Oh, well, hold on. Coop had one more big innovation here. He added in 1872 a second ring to Barnum's show. Is this because the audiences were growing and these tents were getting larger? Well, a second ring actually allowed for a larger tent. In the days before the Jumbotron, you couldn't just make a bigger tent and expect people to look down just on one little ring. Right. So by putting in a second ring, you gave people multiple things to look at. Plus, there had been a tendency in larger tents for people who were way up in the nosebleed seats to rush down, to push down toward the ringside to get a better view. Well, if you added a second ring off to the other side, it sort of took that away. People were sort of fixed in their seats, looking back and forth. There really wasn't a better place to get close to, because if you push toward one, you well, you were actually farther away from the other ring. So it kept people in their seats. But wasn't it disorienting and chaotic? I mean, imagine if, like, the New York Knicks had three rings, <laughs> three different basketball games mm-hmm. going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you've lost me on that sports analogy, <laughs> but I'll say, yes, it was disorienting to people. That was actually part of the point. Uh, he wanted people to feel like maybe they were missing out on something, so they'd come back. P.T. Barnum was putting on a show that was impossible to take in in one viewing. The genius of sensory overload. That's right. Well, well, Barnum had always wanted a permanent circus structure in New York, and he finally got his chance in 1873 when he acquired the land in the northeast corner of Madison Square Park. It was in the following year, in 1874, that his new structure, his new theater opened, named modestly P.T. Barnum's Great Roman Hippodrome, <laughs> and seating 10,000 people with multiple rings and a huge outer ring, large enough to actually stage chariot races. But then, unfortunately, there was a little bit of drama with Coop and Costello that we don't have time to get into, but let's just say that this showman, P.T. Barnum, actually got in trouble for licensing out his name to a competing circus that was traveling elsewhere. Well, he did this without telling his circus partners that oh. there would be another Barnum circus touring around. Mm -hmm. They didn't like it, so they sold their shares to him. He sold off the Hippodrome, and he threw everything behind one touring show. And from that point forward, he'd have a circus that would play in that northeast corner when Madison Square Garden would take its place. Mm -hmm. But he would book that venue like everybody else. So now it was unmoored from a particular venue and could now flow around freely, but then would return to this corner when it did become, of course, the original Madison Square Garden. That's right. And he would open his season, his circus season, in the month of March and would play New York for about six to eight weeks before heading off on tour. He'd tour around New Jersey and Pennsylvania and then come back for a week in Brooklyn, then head up to New England and then head into uh, the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and deeper into the Midwest, and then usually wind up in Texas for the closing of the season around mid-October. But he wasn't alone on tour for long, right? No, because in 1880, Barnum was actually facing some stiff competition from multiple other circuses touring around, one of them being led by a James Bailey, who had been born in Detroit in 1847 and literally has a running away to the circus biography. It's fascinating. He deserves his own show. But Bailey, at this point, was running the great London Cooper and Bailey Allied show. And he merged with Barnum after there was this other dramatic elephant encounter. It's, it's, a, it's a short tale, as <laughs> elephant stories usually are. But together they formed the P.T. Barnum's Greatest Show on Earth and the Great London Circus and Sanger's Royal British Menagerie, etc. <laughs> it was all of that on the banner as you walked in? Right down to the etc. <laughs> and it would be that same year in 1881 that Barnum would introduce the concept of the third ring. So he went to, to being a three-ring circus. And by the way, all the other circuses had to follow suit and add two and then three circuses. If you were left operating just in a single ring, well, you were referred to as a one-ring circus, which was, a, no, seriously, it was yeah. a pejorative term. And this is why a lot of circuses then began consolidating around this time even more. So all these smaller circuses then began forming alliances. Right, because they needed shows to put in those rings. You know, you were basically operating three circuses at the same time. 
Well, one of the first things that Barnum and Bailey did together in 1882, they imported a certain elephant from England named Jumbo. Now, Jumbo was a supersized elephant, right? He had been captured in Ethiopia, made his way to London Zoological Society via Paris, and there he spent several years winning the love of, of the locals. You know, he pulled thousands and thousands of Londoners on sleds through the London Zoo. He was very gentle with children. He was beloved. And the zoo named him Jumbo, obviously, because he was so large, right? Uh, so, Greg, get this. Jumbo, our expression, is named after this elephant. My head just exploded. <laughs> Wow. Right. The zoo named him Jumbo after Mumbo Jumbo, which is a kind of African idol that's also deeply problematic. And so we're just going to leave that there. So Barnum's success with Jumbo, importing him, the publicity that surrounded Jumbo's departure from London was already just like worth millions of dollars to, to Barnum. Because according to some sources, he actually helped create the the backlash to Jumbo leaving in the first place. He planted stories about how the locals didn't want to lose their beloved elephant, right? Thousands of people turned out to protest and to see Jumbo off. So long story short, Jumbo Mm -hmm. helped make and elevate the reputation of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. And, you know, elephants had been associated with the circus and imprinted upon the character of the circus since then. And now he had the largest one in captivity, the largest one who was performing for crowds, right? He could stand on his back legs, extend his trunk, and be 26 feet tall. And Barnum exploited him in any way he could to get publicity. I mean, once in New York, he famously marched him across the Brooklyn Bridge from Manhattan to Brooklyn to where the circus was performing on the Brooklyn side for a week um, to also show not only the strength of his circus entourage, but also the strength of the new Brooklyn Bridge. Right, because there had been many, of course, who were afraid to cross it for that reason, that they thought it was going to collapse into the East River. Unfortunately, on September 15th, 1885, Jumbo's life came to a tragic end in St. Thomas, Ontario. He was struck by an oncoming train in the train yard while walking back to his his own private train car, along with another miniature elephant called Tom Thumb, who was behind him. Now, They were able to get Tom Thumb off the tracks in time, but Jumbo couldn't move as quickly, was struck by this oncoming train, and died. Barnum must have been horrified. I mean, this was his star attraction. Well, Barnum was Barnum, and he he turned everything into a publicity coup. He actually spun the story to make Jumbo the savior of little Tom Thumb, the elephant. He said that Jumbo pulled Tom Thumb off the tracks and took the train head on. For the 1886 and 1887 season, Jumbo's skeleton and his stuffed skin were were actually paraded at the beginning of the circus parades that would stomp down the main streets of every city it was performing in. His skeleton would wind up at the National History Museum in New York, and his stuffed skin would make its way to Tufts University, where Barnum was a trustee, And Tuff's mascot would become Jumbo the Elephant. 
But yes, Barnum would always kick off his 36-week season here in New York for his stay and perform really no matter what. You know, come rain, snow, sleet. We talked about it in our Great Blizzard of 1888 story, how during that Great Blizzard, which struck the city on March 13th, 1888, despite the blizzard, the show went on in Madison Square Garden. Two shows went on. It's one of the few pleasant anecdotes from that horrible event. The audience drinking champagne alongside the circus performers. That's right. And stumbling into the rings. Well, the next year in 1889, Barnum took one last tour around Europe, went off to England where he was feted a sort of farewell tour, came back to the U.S., but his health was in decline. And on April 7th, 1891, after asking his partners about the day's box office take at Madison Square Garden, Barnum died at 82 years old. He left behind an enormous and enormously profitable circus that traveled the nation at that point in 65 railroad cars and entertained millions of Americans. But what was to become of the Barnum and Bailey Circus? Because now with Barnum's presence gone, Mm -hmm. there are other circus extravaganzas that are kind of coming up and could possibly overtake the mantle of Barnum. We'll see how Barnum's circus truly became the greatest show on earth. After this, on April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Now, Tom, you were telling me something interesting before the start of the show, that one of the words for tent in French is Barnum? That's right. Um, Barnum. I mean, I bring that up because it just is a great example of how Barnum's name is even affixed to the accoutrement yes, of the circus. International Circus Association yeah. with his name. <laughs> but it wasn't preordained that Barnum would come to define the concept of the American circus. There were several possible companies that rose to the occasion to possibly supersede the circus that Barnum had left behind. Although his circus would continue, right? Oh, With yeah, James yeah. Bailey at the helm. But there were two large companies that also swept in to entertain audiences. The first one arrived in New York actually during Barnum's lifetime. That was the Buffalo Bill Wild West Show, hmm. which made its debut in the New York area in the summer of 1886. It was at first situated in Staten Island. 
1894, a greater expanded version of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show made its home in Ambrose Park in Brooklyn, which is kind of the harbor side of Sunset Park along the waterfront there. Hold on a second. You're talking now about Wild West shows. I'm seeing Uh like shootouts and things. That isn't what Barnum was putting on. Well, actually, there were a lot of things in common here. A great number of things because it had animal acts. It had daredevil feats. And most importantly, Just like Barnum's show, it would have these grand processions that would often incorporate reenactments of history. Mm -hmm. Added to that was this great sense of nostalgia and romanticism for the Old West. To give you an idea of what this was like, Tom, can I read a little bit from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle? Oh, please do. You're going to like this. This is just a description of what a show would have been like, and you'll see what was similar to a Barnum circus. Quote, 450 Rough Riders of all nations came dashing into the arena in companies and assembled for the grand preliminary review. They included 185 Indians and 40 each of cowboys, United States cavalry, French, Irish, and German troopers, Cossacks, and Arabs. After their various evolutions came an exhibition of dexterous fancy shooting by Ms. Annie Oakley, and then a horse race between a cowboy, Cossack, Mexican, Arab, and a gaucho. After this, Buffalo Bill made a grand entrance, riding at full speed on his grand-looking Kentucky thoroughbred, and cracked glass balls in the air with an offhand pace that made his precision the more wonderful. An imitation buffalo hunt with a herd of ten bison in the arena came next, and then, after an Indian attack on a settler's cabin, the company entered again for a parting salute. Everything and Annie Oakley, too. And Annie Oakley was there. She was, of course, one of the great attractions of the Wild West show. So Barnum had been telling, you know, the great stories of the world, and the, he, he had history on parade in his grand processions. Mm-hmm. And so the these Wild West shows were sort of doing a similar thing here. Except the difference is that this was American history, right. where Barnum's was often European history. Well, there was an arena built here in Brooklyn that could hold 20,000 people that was built specifically for the Wild West show. Would he take this as well on tour? Yes, just like Barnum. This would tour the United States and would tour the world even. Buffalo Bill would be a household name. However, not surprising that this type of show, Mm -hmm. it's a very specific type of genre here, um, would eventually seem passe. Buffalo Bill's final Wild West show would be in 1913, around the time that motion picture westerns would come in to fill the void here. Perhaps of a more lasting influence was a show that was operated by seven Wisconsin brothers named Ringling. Ah, yes. The Ringling Ringling Brothers. (laughs) Yes. They operated a circus in the 1880s, again, near the end of Barnum's life, and would eventually collaborate with James Bailey in the purchase of shares of smaller circuses. So it's like kind of these two big circus giants. So around the early 20th century, they would be the two largest circuses in the United States. In the 1890s, these long, pretentious titles, they were called the Ringling Brothers United Monster Shows, Great Double Circus, Royal European Menagerie, Museum, Caravan, and Congress of Trained Animals. Well, in 1909, the Ringling Brothers actually bought 
the Barnum and Bailey Circus and operated it as a separate entity. So it was still two circuses, but they just owned everything. And then in 1919, after the war, you know, after these circuses and many other institutions had faced all of these financial difficulties, well, Ringling officially merged with the Barnum and Bailey Circus to create, of course, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show on Earth. And that name and that circus would live on, you say that was 1919, Mm -hmm. so for another 98 years. But what this circus was, like the entity that was formed at this time, Mm -hmm. was still very, very close to what Barnum had envisioned. And even though he had died many, many years before... Mm Barnum is still imprinted on the circus, and even today, the legacy of Barnum still looms large, not only in this circus troupe, but in other circuses that still exist today. Now, to be sure, there have been innovations in the circus world. I'm thinking notably of the Cirque du Soleil, of the Big Apple Circus, which actually reversed the Barnum trend in many ways in going smaller and going more intimate in style rather than big and sort of chaotic. But Barnum, if anything, was unafraid of innovation And it is also somewhat ironic that the circus that he helped create, that style of circus, stayed in that same format for more than 100 years after his death in 1891. It kind of makes you wonder if Barnum was around today still running his circus, what that circus would be like, because it probably wouldn't be like a circus from 1891. Well, to get a little insight into kind of how Barnum would have seen this and sort of why Barnum is so important, not only to the circus, but to all forms of entertainment today, we decided to go straight to the source, to the Barnum Museum, which is located in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Bridgeport, Connecticut, Barnum's hometown. Bridgeport, Connecticut, where Barnum would build many lavish residences, uh, several of which would also burn. Uh, But Bridgeport, Connecticut, where Barnum also launched a life in politics as Mm -hmm. well that we haven't even gotten into here. So So you can't talk about Barnum without going to Bridgeport. So, Tom, let's get on the Metro North train and go to Connecticut, shall we? Let's go. So, Tom, we're here in Bridgeport, Connecticut. That was pretty easy. That was a very (laughs) easy commute to Bridgeport. Wow. we, We are approaching this absolutely gorgeous building and affixed to the side of the building is a large black and white photograph of P.T. Barnum and Tom Thumb. I believe this must be the Barnum Museum. (laughs) Well, and right above it on the second floor of this red stone building, uh, it says the Barnum Institute of Science and History. It's a gorgeous structure from the 1890s. So indeed it is a Barnum Museum or else it's just a very badly marked target. (laughs) Let's just head into the front door um, where we are going to be met by Kathleen Marr, the executive director of the Barnum Museum, and I hear she is. Yeah, she's going to give us a little tour. Hey. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, welcome. I'm Tom. Hello, hello. Come in, please. Thank you so much for letting us drop in on you like this. 
So where we just left it in the studio is when they bought, like the mergers are beginning to happen essentially here. Um, but we wanted to step back a little bit because we are in like the place in the United yeah. States that knows Barnum better than anyone. And so we kind of wanted to get a little bit of insight into Barnum's initial associations with sure. the circus. We hear about ways that he innovated in mm-hmm. the circus, you know, he really put the circus on rails, on, on, he used the train in ways it hadn't been used before. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, Barnum kind of stumbled into the circus. Um, a lot of people don't realize that. He had a full life and major enterprises um, long before the circus actually came to him. And it was really his American museum way downtown uh, in the city where he created the Barnum brand You know, that's really where it starts. So people knew who Barnum was. And it was the first museum burns down in 1865, and then he reopens. The second museum burns down in 1868. And it's when his buddy, Horace Greeley, you know, Barnum's buddy. Yeah, okay. He finally said to Barnum, it's like, you know, Take this as a sign, my friend, and go a fishing. So, you know, that was that was Horace Greeley's advice to Barnum. It's like, look, you've been at this a long time. Go a fishing. That's to say, like, get out of town, get out take of it town, on the road take, where things reta- can't burn down. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. So what was everybody doing at the time? It was the Adventure West. So Barnum decided to, to really travel out west. And it was really during that kind of hiatus that Barnum was approached by a couple of Midwestern circus promoters who basically said, can we use your name? We have a circus enterprise idea that we want to really create a phenomena out of what the circus model had been in America up until that point. And Barnum's scratching his head. Uh, Okay, I'm editorializing there, but, (laughs) but he basically says, he goes, you know, this would revive my love of my museums. So uh-huh. Barnum always circled back to his museums. And that's when the circus that we really think of today begins. And, and could you tell us about his experience in running that first circus before James Bailey came sure, on board? Sure, sure. Well, the circus went through a lot of iterations. It was, it was brand new. And certainly his partners at that time were also visionaries. You know, the idea of putting it on rails and having huge, enormous tent shows that increased in size and square footage by having a second ring where people were constantly being entertained. So he brought that second ring in. They brought that, that second, yeah. 1870s. And was it Barnum's exclusive idea? Though the jury's out on that. He certainly supported the idea he, or it wouldn't have happened. He very, he very well popularized it, obviously. So Very well popularized it. And they understood if you were going to have 13,000 people, I mean, those tents got darn big you couldn't have everybody trying to look down at one little you know one little section there you'd lose interest you'd lose your audience right god forbid but there was a point after the first couple of seasons because the runs were extraordinary we have to think about what's happening economically as well and the gold manipulation and the crash in 1873 when markets and people were less inclined I mean and this is right when he's trying to get this off the ground and this is right in the early stages when things are but he he was an extraordinary economist he understood return on investment and they stuck with it I mean ultimately it became the largest grossing circus it was grossed over a million dollars in the uh, in in a season in the 1870s. And was that based here out of Bridgeport? Well, the um, winter quarters, 
was here in Bridgeport. But uh, the, the home base really became the corner section of 26th Street and Madison Avenue, you know, the, the first Hippodrome, you know, then shortly named Madison Square Garden. So people don't realize that if it wasn't for, you know, P.T. Barnum, would there even be a Madison Square Garden? He had an office in Madison Square Garden until he died. Well, now that we're here in the story, I'd like us to do a little imaginative time travel here to a circus in the 1880s that might have been at Madison Square Garden. Okay. Walk us through, t- take us arm in arm through the, through the, through the front door here. How, what would we have seen? What would a circus have been like at this time? What would have been similar to a circus today and what would have been very different? Well, the big thing that you really would have noticed, it was a diverse audience Everybody. It was women, children, all that types of cultures and and you know social backgrounds. So it was ladies place, and gentlemen and children of all and ages and children of all. Like, you're brilliant. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. Yes, I mean that's really the first thing that you see is the energy that something like that produces. Everybody's there. It 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 just transcends generations and transcends cultures. It's all about that excitement, that pageantry, you know, that that curiosity that you're being satisfied with. And depending on whether you were going into a a tented show or a Madison Square Garden, certainly the Hippodrome, you know, the original Hippodrome was actually appointed very beautifully, very elegantly. So you would go and you would have your seating and then the spectaculars that would take place. They were much more like pageants. They were the the huge chariot These processions, right? processions, the Congress of Nations. Uh, Barnum spent, oh my gosh, the the, the hundreds of thousands of dollars on props and on costumes, and they would change them up. You know, a big um, presentation was the, the patriotic procession that happened, too. So it was all about your American fervor, because what's kind of happening is, is 1876, and all of a sudden the country is 100 years old. So you have to think about those things in terms and of And moving time. westward, too. And moving westward. So there was great national pride. Were we seeing... It was animal acts, acrobats with their clowns. Yes, yes, okay. yes. <laughs> and a ringmaster. And yes, then Barnum was never a ringmaster. People always want to believe that he was, but he was not. Um, he was usually an attraction. People mm-hmm. did want to see sure, him. Yeah. But if you were going to one of the, the traveling shows, there were multiple tents. It wasn't like it was one tent and everything happened there. But yes, there were acrobats. There certainly were clowns to keep the audience excited and engaged. But there would be other tents. Barnum always traveled with a fine art tent. So there would be exhibits from the, you know, similar to the American Museum. There would be a museum tent. So... It was not the way we think of it today. The idea of the sideshow emerges from the American Museum because he knew performers. You know, it, it, people that worked for Barnum were part of that yeah, family. Yeah, that makes, in a that lot makes of sense, ways. of course. If he had all these connections, I mean, he ran these museums. He the did. museums are gone, but now he has this other venture. Why wouldn't he put them in there? So, Kathleen, if you wouldn't mind, would you give Tom and I a little walking tour of the collection? Sure. Um, that uh, is currently on display on a few days of the week. Cool. I saw a lot of really fun-looking things in the other room. Can we head in there Let's now? Let's go see them. All right. 
All right, so she's just pulled back the screen, and in front of us are varied curiosities and attractions. I mean, oh, yes. far bigger than a cabinet of curiosities. It's an, <laughs> uh, an entire large room. Now, of course, this isn't how these are normally displayed. Yeah, well, no, we are in an unusual situation. Uh, a lot of people don't realize in 2010, the city of Bridgeport was actually hit by an EF1 tornado. Well, Crazy. Because, you know, when you think Connecticut, you think tornadoes. You think tornadoes, tornadoes. Uh, yeah. So we have really been um, working to recover from, you know, the natural disasters that we're having these days. And, you know, the year after that was Hurricane Irene and then it was Hurricane Sandy. So we have been in this mode. But this is about a 5,000 square foot room with all of the artifacts from the museum. So everything in here from Tom Thumb's carriages to a mythological centaur mm. uh, can be seen and enjoyed and explored by guests. Fortunately, you could fit a lot of Tom Thumb's uh, memorabilia <laughs> in this room. One thing that we have in our collection are, are remarkable Tom Thumb materials. Now, when people come to the museum even today, they'll have the opportunity to see a couple of these petite man-in-miniature carriages. One is actually shaped like a nut. This is probably one of the most unique pieces, uh, probably in the country. There's nothing quite else in another collection like this. And it, Greg and I were talking about another mighty performer uh, by the name of Commodore Nut. Commodore Nut. This, this is his? Commodore Nuts. Yes, Greg, this is Commodore, Commodore Nuts. Nuts carriage. <laughs> well, I mean, it like it looks like a nut. It's a it's a, a sort of a large. It's cracked like a nut. It's, it's a large nut with four wheels. Uh, a very ornate elegant nut-shaped carriage, must yes. I say. So Commodore Nutt was actually a friend of, of Tom Thumb and Lavinia Warren's. He was the best man at their wedding down at Grace Church. What's, uh, what's striking about this uh, nutty little carriage is it's right next to a far larger one, actually two, in fact, that look like they were from the circus yeah. themselves. These, right? are real, these are real working circus wagons from the 1890s, so a little later on, but there were ticket wagons and just some of the way that you had to roll the business end of the traveling circuses. And these these would have been pulled by horses? or Yes. yes. Oh, absolutely. These were horse-drawn um, wagons. Don't, it was probably a one to two horse hitch. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen, for taking us around uh, the museum, showing us these amazing items. And of course, we're only mentioning a couple of them yes. um, that we walked by on our way into your office. Yeah, we're we are we are marveling at the fact that this is where you get to come to work every day <laughs> among all of these um, these spectacles, but also there's a, a beautiful fine art statues, this beautiful furniture here. This is a great place that people should check out. Yes, thank you very much. It, it was a real joy. I know sometimes when I uh, come in in the morning, you walk past all of these. They're kind of old friends now. I've been here almost twenty years. I mean, there's a stuffed elephant that Our you have to walk by every 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 morning. You yes. have to walk by. Well, thanks so much for showing us. Around. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we are back in the studio. Thank you again to Kathleen Marr and all of her hardworking colleagues at the Barnum Museum. Check out their website and get involved in their exciting redevelopment project to bring Barnum into the 21st century. You can find them at barnum-museum.org or visit them in person in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And also visit our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have 
quite a number of interesting photographs from the period of Barnum and the Circus, as well as some Buffalo Bill, some Ringling Brothers, and beyond. <laughs> now, but not Beyonce. <laughs> and also some photos that you actually took at the Barnum Museum. Oh, that's right, of, a, of the bones of a centaur. Barnum's top hat and also Tom Thumb's costume. Mm-hmm. It was very exciting. Plus, Greg and I did swing by Mountain Grove Cemetery in Bridgeport, uh, where Barnum is buried right across a little lane from his friend Charles Stratton, also known as Tom Thumb. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this show, men, because we want to remind you again to come to our show, which is on April 9th. That's the NYC Podfest. It's at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn. We hope to see all of you there because we're going to record it and you're all going to be part of the show that's actually going to be released later. That's Sunday, April 9th, 2017, 3.30 in the afternoon. Get your tickets at nycpodfest.com. A big thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. We will be releasing some really fun audio extras for our patrons. We have the full version of our interview with Kathleen Marr at the Barnum Museum. We also are going to have maybe a little extra circus chat um, Mm -hmm. because we still have a lot to talk about. (laughs) And I'd like to actually talk a little bit more about those high school circuses. Um, Speaking of which, I just have to dedicate the show, if I might, Greg, to my old friend, Pat Wallace, without whom I would never have been able to put on the Bellevue Hippodrome and All-American Super (laughs) Circus. It was Pat who actually built the trapeze in my backyard and i suppose i should thank my parents for allowing me to build the trapeze in the backyard (laughs) oh my god you should see tom it's like he won an academy award and if you still want a little bit more circus go back to the episode of our spinoff show the first stories of inventions and their consequences where i talk about old bet the first circus elephant and the early days of the bailey family So on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.